versus Reyes. We will continue with the protocol used yesterday, 30 minutes to a side, including, of course, the judges going in order of seniority. Is the appellant ready to argue? Yes, Your Honor. The government? Yes, Your Honor. Appellant may argue. Good morning. Chief Judge, members of the court, may it please the court, I am Major Ben Atchinelli and I represent the appellant specialist Marco Reyes. Your Honor, I'd ask for three minutes in rebuttal. Three? Yes, sir. Granted. Thank you. Your Honor, in this case, the government did not act to take immediate steps to try a soldier they chose to place into pretrial confinement. And when that happens, Article 10 contemplates only one remedy, and that's dismissal with prejudice. And that's precisely what this court should order here. The government chose to put specialist Reyes into confinement on July 31, 2015. They preferred charges against him one week later. And those same charges were eventually tried at court-martial some 450 days later. That demonstrates the lack of immediate steps taken by the government in this case, and the lack of reasonable diligence holistically throughout the process. Charges were originally referred against him in December 2015, but it still took an additional 10 months to bring him to trial. And there's no reason it should have taken that long. There was initial delay at the fault of the government. The government, or the defense correction, submitted its first offer to plead guilty in December of 2015. However, the prosecution refused to show that offer to the convening authority, absent a signed stipulation of fact, which the defense only agreed to do if the convening authority accepted that offer to plead guilty, which never happened. Moreover, they notified the government that same month in December that they needed experts in, amongst other things, forensic psychiatry and Spanish translation. But five months later, when it came to trial time in April, those experts had still not been procured, and the government requested additional delay. And then turning to the last two periods of delay in August... Counsel, get closer to the microphone. I'm having trouble hearing you. Turning to the last two months in August and October, both of those delays were engendered by late government disclosures. And contrary to the government's argument that the judge's remedy cures any prejudice here, the fact that the judge needed to suppress, at least in the case in chief, some of that evidence is evidence of lack of reasonable diligence. In October of 2016, the government was still originally turning over witness statements they received in September of 2015. Overall, there was a lack of reasonable diligence throughout the process. Article 10 has been violated, and this court should dismiss the charges. Thank you, counsel. One observation on this case. Nobody seemed to want to try this case, except maybe the staff judge advocate to the convening authority. What's going on here? You get six offers to plead. You've got no Article 10 motion until six months go by. What's going on here? I wish I knew, 
party. Um, Early on and late. Uh, yes, yes, Your Honor. Um, but I would point this court to the April motion to dismiss for a Fifth Amendment speeding trial violation, where it appears the defense was fully prepared to go to trial on eight of the nine sexual assault allegations, as well as many of the other numerous charges. Well, there was at least one situation in which the government said, okay, well, the government said, okay, we'll be ready on day X. And the appellant, the accused said, oh, well, we'll be ready on day X plus a month and a half. Um, I still don't get what's going on here. Uh, you know, the government's scurrying around, and I will propound this to government. The government's scurrying around trying to find experts for the defense. The defense hasn't proffered any names, and, and here we are 455 days later. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, part of our argument is that, that, that it shouldn't be so hard to find an expert in forensic psychiatry. I mean, the Department of Defense employs hundreds of them. Um, had there been a more rigorous search when initially requested or when the judge compelled it in early February, it's the defense's position that they would have found one for the April trial date, and this case would have and should have gone to trial in April. Thank you, counsel. Judge Ryan. Yes, counsel, um, if, if I understand the stipulation of facts that you entered into with the government on 19 October 2016, um, the charges referred on December 10th of 2015, and the defense immediately said it was not available for trial until May of 9th of 2016. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. Secondly, oh, no, the Secondly, on four eight, the 4-18-2016 withdrawal, um, where the charges were drawn and transferred to a different commander and re-referred, um, it appears in the papers that the defense agreed to that, to that withdrawal and re-referral. Is that correct? I, I don't know that they agreed or disagreed. On my reading of the record, Your Honor, was that the government simply did that and the defense agreed to keep the make a difference to this court. 
Your Honor, I don't think it's good for two reasons. The first one is they did file an April speedy trial request indicating they were ready to go forward on almost all the serious charges in this case. And the second is that Article 10 is flipped from the Sixth Amendment. So the Sixth Amendment gives an accused the right to a speedy trial, but Article 10 places the burden on the government to take immediate steps. And so we do think that's a distinction that matters in this case. Okay. Can I turn your attention to the issue of prejudice here? We're looking at issues such as preventing oppressive pretrial confinement, minimizing appellant's anxiety, and limiting the impairment of the defense in preparation. Where do you find the prejudice in this particular case? Your Honor, we find the prejudice, although it's not required under Supreme Court precedent, and I don't think Article 10 necessarily requires it, but we find the prejudice in the particularized anxiety and concern of having counsel for nine months and then triggering a delay where that counsel was forced to leave the installation, and Specialist Reyes rightly suffered more anxiety and concern about his looming need-to-IMC request and things of that nature. And second, we note that the parties agreed at trial, when it finally happened, to 90 days of pretrial punishment credit, Article 13 credit. So although they did not discuss what it was on the record, it is clear there was some agreed-upon pretrial punishment that occurred, and that goes to the oppressive pretrial incarceration. Okay. I assume my time is up, so I defer. Thank you. Judge Sparrow. Good morning, Major Escanelia. I want to thank you for joining us, and you've got a very well-written brief here. But I have no questions, and I'm happy to cede my time back to either counsel or over to Judge Maggs, however the Chief Judge wishes. Thank you, Judge Sparrow. Judge Maggs. Good morning, Major Escanelia. I'd like to ask you if you could respond to one of the points that the government makes in its brief. The government notes that the appellant ultimately released one of the requested experts and argues that this decision demonstrates that the appellant could have proceeded to trial without the expert but waited until the government secured the expert, and therefore I guess that not all of the delay associated with securing the expert was the government's fault. What's your response to that argument by the government? Well, Your Honor, I don't think it tells us anything one way or the other. It seems perfectly reasonable to me to require an expert consultant, as the military judge found at the motions hearing, to consult with them to learn information about forensic psychiatry that the defense counsel simply don't know and then say, all right, good, I'm not going to need you for trial. Thank you for your service. I don't have any more money. Thank you for your time. Okay. And let me ask a second question, and this also goes to the question of prejudice. Does the appellant have an argument or are you making an argument that the government delays specifically harm the trial preparation of the defense? I mean, often the delays would make it easier to prepare for trial. Your Honor, my understanding of the record is that the motions below primarily leave on present pre-trial incarceration and particular anxiety concerns with regard to the court barter factor. Thank you. I have no further questions. Counsel, didn't he end up with the defense counsel he had despite the PCS? 
was eventually approved, and he did have the same legal counsel that he had. All right, so what's the problem? He worried about it? That is part of the problem, Your Honor, yes, is that it is. Well, number one, is there anything in the record that says that? And number two, I'm very sorry he worried about it, but he wasn't harmed. He got the same counsel. So where does that leave us? You've already said that the trial prep wasn't impeded. Now we're back on, well, he was worried. Your Honor, he did testify at the August motion hearing to the particular anxiety and concern, which is one of the... I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Go ahead. Your Honor, he did testify as to particularized anxiety and concern during the August Article 10 motion. Okay. So we do rest some of our brief upon that. But again, that is only a small subset of the congressional question of did the government take immediate steps, and we stand by the answer is no. And we would highlight that Article 10 is different than many of the other articles because in it Congress has warranted a remedy. They say immediate steps or dismissal. It's very different than Article 12 or 13, which just says don't do these things. So let's talk about immediate steps. What is your view with respect to the time during which the parties were pursuing the notion of a plea agreement? To whom do you believe that that time is attributable? I believe that the delay in sending the offer to plead guilty to the convening authority that ultimately disapproved it is attributable to the government. Which period of delay specifically are you talking about? From what date to what date? Specifically talking about the delay from the first offer to plead guilty in December until the January 28th date that the government sent a stipulation of fact to the defense. So it's your view then that a trial counsel could not say that with your plea of guilty you need to propose a stipulation of fact? I think they can say that the convening authority will not accept an offer to plead guilty with that in it, but until that offer is accepted there is no triggering mechanism for the defense to have to sign a stipulation of fact. This is a prime example of the waste that it causes. Okay, well I guess I've committed a lot of errors when I was a trial counsel because I wouldn't propose a plea agreement without a stipulation of fact. Moving on to that, what period of time specifically do you say that the government did not do anything, that there was not forward motion with respect to this trial? And I understand you're not happy with how long it took them to find an expert. You're not happy with how long it took the plea agreement. But during what period of time specifically do you say that nothing happened, that there was no forward motion? Well, there was certainly no forward motion from at least April to August. And there was again... But you had said that you weren't going to be ready to go to trial, right, until June 6th? I believe the initial date request was May, Your Honor, but it's clear in the party that they were in fact ready to go to trial in April. They were ready to go to trial in April on everything except for the one victim that they had asked the forensic psychiatrist for. So on nearly all of the charges, the defense was ready in April, and had they had the forensic psychiatrist that the court had ordered a couple of months earlier, they would have been ready in April. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you.
prior, I don't think there's any reason to believe they would not have been properly prepared. Do you have any, any evidence whatsoever that this delay was any delay that you were complaining of was occasioned by the government in order to secure an advantage, a tactical advantage of some sort or another? Uh, it is clear from the uh, October uh, turnover of emails that they've had for over a year that there was negligence, but we are not alleging specific malicious bad faith, Your Honor. Questions from other judges? Yes, Chief. Uh, this is Judge Olson. I have a question. Following up on what Judge Ryan was talking about here, you were saying that the defense was ready to go to trial much earlier. What are we to make of the fact that when the military judge denied the defense's March 28th motion to dismiss, appellant didn't say, okay, we want to go to trial right now. The appellant agreed to a continuance all the way to the end of August. They agreed to that. And then with the August 24th motion to dismiss, appellant agreed to a delay until October. Shouldn't it be a situation where uh, trial defense counsel said, needs to say, no, I don't agree to that. I want to go to trial right now. Well, Your Honor, it appears that they did want to go to trial in April based upon their, not their Article 10 motion, but their other speedy trial motion uh, as a backup that they were ready to go to trial in nearly every serious charge in this case. Uh, and the, it is also clear that the reason for the extensive delay to the end of August is to allow uh, the lead counsel in this case to change his relations. Okay, but I think you're missing my point. My point is if defense counsel says to a military judge, yes, I agree to this continuance, how can a appellate court then look backwards and say, gee, there was a real problem here, military judge should have recognized that there was issue. Doesn't the agreement to the continuance really undercut appellant's position here? I don't think it does, Your Honor, because the question is still what caused the delay, and the delay in April, uh, the, the government asked for that one. It's true that the defense agreed to the date, but they certainly did not request that delay. And with regard to the August delay, what caused the delay was the government disclosing, hey, we have a lot of your client's statements. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say you have to guess whether they have something really incriminating on in there before you advise your client whether you should testify or not. I think that the naturally causes delay, and that cause is late disclosures from the government. But was that discovery material, though, related to appellant's own misconduct? And if so, can that really be considered as part of uh, Article 10 delays if it was appellant's own misconduct? Your Honor, the government asserts that it's on misconduct. It appears that there may have been a no-contact order in place for some of the subset of those calls, um, but the vast majority was, was not. It was simply, you know, if appellant was in jail for over a year at the time they grabbed it and had been making phone calls to various people. Were you complaining in your motion about the fact that, that these, um, these tapes recordings between appellant and witnesses um, that somehow the government should have known about them and disclosed them earlier? How, how, how is that? Your 
Honor, the... Does the government have a requirement to, like, ask every witness in the case? Has the accused been contacting you and trying to get you to not testify at trial, et cetera, et cetera? Well, Your Honor, to the extent the government was ready for trial in April, absent the expert witness issue, I would expect they would have talked to a cooperating witness and say, hey, has anything changed? Anything like that? And I expect that she readily made that disclosure to them in August, apparently. But if the government wants to seize that evidence, then it's free to do so, but it's going to cause delay. They could have simply questioned her about it. Isn't it true that at trial, and this would have obviated the entirety of the issue. Well, would have, could have, should have. The point is that they're not required to, and when this blew up in their face, that he had been violating a no-contact order, it was his own misconduct. It seems to me, as Judge Ryan points out, that how is that attributable to government? I'm certainly not attributing his misconduct to the government, Your Honor. Well, the delay occasioned by his misconduct. But it's not misconduct for which he was charged, Your Honor. So it could have been. Whoa, whoa. We're not talking uncharged misconduct here. We're talking the origin of delay. This is an Article 10 case. Agreed, Your Honor. Can I ask one other question about this delay from, that Judge Olson brought up, from 4 April to 26 August? The stipulation of facts that you entered into, the defense counsel entered in with the government, point number 114, JA 320 says, on 4 April 2016, during an Article 39A session, the court placed on the record the new schedule for trial. Additionally, the court questioned the accused about the new trial date to ensure it was acceptable with the accused because it was in pre-trial confinement. The military judge set the trial for 26 August through 2 September 2016. So implicit in that, isn't that, well, it's not, the defense did not request a delay, the defense acquiesced to that continuance. Are you there, counsel? Hello? Is anybody online? Hello? I'm still on the line, Your Honor. I think it's the appellant counsel's phone. What? I think he said something, he was saying something about, can they hear me, can they hear me, and then he left. Okay, I didn't even hear that. Okay. Hold it. Okay, are you back on? I am, sir. Okay, go ahead. All right, so Judge Ryan, I know you asked about the appellant personally, the judge personally questioned the appellant. Our response would be that this court should not give that particularly much weight. He wasn't entitled to counsel, he had counsel, and counsel told him, if you want me to continue to be counsel, 
way it's going to happen. So I do not afford it a, a lot of ways that the judge asked the appellant personally um, in this case for those reasons. I understand. Thank you. All right, counsel. Uh, your time has expired minus the three minutes for... Um, oh, no. I, I'm, I'm mistaken. Go ahead, counsel. You have three minutes and 12 seconds left. We stopped the clock when you dropped off. Yeah, when you dropped off. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. But pending further questions of the court, um, we ask this court to dismiss for violation of Article 10. Any questions from other judges? If not, thank you, counsel. Counsel for the government. Yes, Your Honor. Chief Judge members of the court, please support. My name is Captain Gary Marin, and I represent the United States. As a threshold matter, this court has a complete record before it, complying with the statutory command of Article 54 and the procedural command of RCM 1103. Withdrawn cases do not need a verbatim transcript. Only cases resulting in punishment necessitate that. Reyes II was a creature of a separate CNCO promulgated by a different convening authority. And when it resulted, yes, ma'am. Never mind. Sorry, I was breaking our rules. Never mind. Go ahead, counsel. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, Could you speak a little louder? Yes, Your Honor. A verbatim record of Reyes I accomplishes nothing for appellant in his Article 10 assignment of error because everything was litigated anew. This claim, however, article, appellant's Article 10 claim, it fails. This is not a scenario in which an appellant languished away in a brig, unaware of the charges against him, precluded from confronting his accusers. Instead, time and again, appellant agreed to, requested, and even caused delays. Waiting 192 days to ever raise a speedy trial issue, he brandished Article 10 when he knew the government could not proceed, only to seek in contingent later once the government was ready. In August of 2016, despite three speedy trial motions up to that point, he requested a continuance until October over government objection, indicating that he was not ready to be tried after all. On the other hand, the government, charged with prosecuting these serious, complex offenses, proceeded with reasonable diligence. There were no periods of inactivity. They conducted a magistrate's review as to the appropriateness of pretrial confinement. They staffed six offers to plead guilty, gathering approval from appellant's chain of command and three separate victims, jockeying back multiple counteroffers from the convening authority. They sought out experts from all over the world. And even during October 2016, where the government's discovery practice was not textbook, the government's behavior lacked any malicious intent to impede the defense. There was no governmental indifference, and it did not result in a delay. The military judge rendered any possible error harmless and imposed multiple remedies, ensuring that the appellant faced no prejudice at trial. She also credited him day-for-day confinement off of his sentence. And so viewing these proceedings as a whole, taking into account all of the Barker v. Wingo factors, the factual explanation for the reasonable and justifiable delays weigh in favor of the government, and this court should affirm the judgment of the Army Court. Thank you, counsel. Um, I agree, I think, that there weren't a lot of periods of inactivity. 
voted to discover the expert witnesses that are satisfactory to the defense. The defense said, we want a forensic psychiatrist. The government didn't say, who do you want? They said, oh dear, we'll get it at any cost, no problem, and then scurried around for months trying to find him. I have to say that the observation by defense counsel that there's got to be a huge forensic psychiatrist floating around the U.S. military is probably the case. Plus, I can't imagine that a Spanish language translator would be that hard to find in North Carolina. But regardless of that, the government seems to have taken upon itself the whole burden of doing this when it's up to the defense to indicate who they want, and it's up to the government under order to pay for it. So what's going on there? Yes, Your Honor, I'll respond in two parts. To address the first part of your question about generally what was the government doing, I think it's important to start by noting that the government leading up to arraignment complied with all the procedural requirements with the magistrate's review, the Article 32 took 28 days to publish, and then when they withdrew and dismissed and re-preferred anew everything following the Article 32 report... Which wasn't necessary, but we'll go ahead. Well, it might not have been necessary because the government could have preferred additional charges, but as this court said in Cooley, the government has the right, if not the obligation, to thoroughly investigate before proceeding to trial. And based off the 32 report who recommended preferring additional charges, the government has a preference, is complying with RCM's preference to try all known charges and offenses together at one time. So that was at least a reasonable explanation. Counsel, I'm sorry, you keep fading out and fading back in. Could you stay closer to the microphone? Yes, sir, I apologize. Thank you. And then following arraignment, if you look, Your Honor, the majority of the government's activity was in response to four offers to plead guilty following the 9 December arraignment leading up to the appellant's first motion to dismiss in February. And so the complicated pretrial negotiations, as this court found in Wilson, is quite reasonable. The government there had to consult with three separate victims, one of whom was represented by a special victim's counsel, coordinate with the chain of command. They notified the military judge. And so if you're, to the extent appellant is concerned about the stipulation of staff and requiring that later, I would note that we're only, that not until the defense notified the government that they had providency issues following their second offer to plead, did the government say, we're going to require a stipulation of staff. Thank you. Your time is up. Thank you. My time is up, rather. Thank you. Judge Arad. I just have a question, counsel, with respect to the forensic psychiatrist. Am I correct that the motion to grant the defense request for a forensic psychiatrist wasn't granted until February 8th? Correct, Your Honor. And then the government contacted some, I guess, like expert 
Good morning, Captain Marin. Let me ask you about a point that Appellant makes in its reply brief. Appellant argues that the government was improper in, acted improperly in refusing to show the offer to plead guilty to the convening authority unless it was accompanied by a stipulation of fact. The appellant argues that the government had no authority to do this. What's the government's response to that statement? Your Honor, that's a perfectly legitimate way of doing business in terms of securing an offer to plead guilty. This is a particularly complex case with a charge sheet that's six pages long with over 30 specifications, and the appellant already had providency issues for his third offer to plead that he submitted on 26 January. And so when the government said, we are not going to present this to the convening authority without a stipulation of fact, that is, that's absolutely reasonable, and it's something that the, it's the prerogative of the convening authority who's going to put a limit on the appellant's punitive exposure for, and to also ensure that there is a meeting of the minds for this offer to plead that both sides understand exactly what the deal that the appellant is entering into with. My second question concerns the point that the appellant makes in his reply brief that if the government wanted to know what Ms. Martinez and the appellant had communicated about, or whether they had communicated, it could have exercised reasonable diligence and simply asked Ms. Martinez. And what's the government's response to that particular allegation, or particular argument, I should say? Yes, Your Honor, two points. The first is that it's important to remember that there was an offer to plead guilty locked in as of 16 May. And from May until he agreed to keep his, the trial date as of August, there were five months spanned there where they were locked into an offer to plead guilty where the appellant was going to plead guilty to the second charge on the charge sheet, which was conspiring with his co-conspirator to remove the stolen Xbox. And so the landscape changed significantly when the appellant backed out of his OTC completely in September of 2016. So my first point, I guess, Your Honor, is simply that there was no reason to go back to that co-conspirator to ask her these questions. And the second part about this is that this co-conspirator was a represented party. She was facing charges in the civilian sector and had a federal public defender. So it was not that the government had quick access to this witness. Our position is that the appellant did indeed have the notice of this ongoing accumulation of the telephone calls that he was making throughout confinement. So despite the government not learning about it until August 5th when they did do that interview, which is a reasonable time period, technically it was the appellant making these telephone calls. So there could have been the surprise embedded within the jail telephone call data dump that appellant cited to as of August of 2016. Thank you. Thank you. All judges having completed, any judge may ask questions and counsel, you may proceed. I have a follow-up question to Judge Maggs' question about the authority of trial counsel if they acted on their own recognizance to not forfeit the right to 
board is offered to plead guilty without a stipulation of fact. And I say that because, you know, I mentioned earlier that, like, that was a requirement, but it was one that the convening authorities had agreed with me about. Does that make sense? It was not one that I, on my own, took upon myself. And so is it the case here that the trial counsel said, I'm not going to forward an offer to plead guilty to the convening authority because I want a stipulation of fact? Your Honor, I think the record is not quite clear to that, so in candor I have to say that I'm not certain as to the answer to your question. But I know two things that might be relevant. And the first is that I believe I cited in the footnote to my brief that the trial counsel had their own internal reviews with their supervisory chain of the actual stipulation of fact, and that's one part of the puzzle that they were working on in coordinating with these offers to plead guilty, which indicates that that stipulation of fact was running up the chain and that the SJA and thereby convening authority was aware of what was going on. And then the second thing, Your Honor, is it's not in the joint appendix, but in the record the convening, excuse me, the statute of advocates wrote advice to the convening authority about which charges that the appellant was going to plead guilty to and which that he was not. And if my memory is correct, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe that a stipulation of fact was part of the enclosures that the SJA had with him when he discussed this offer to plead with the convening authority. So it does not appear to me, Your Honor, that the trial counsel in this case just took the initiative and said, no defense, we're not going to pass this up. It appears to be that that was government action as a whole in consultation with the convening authority. Via the statute of advocates? Yes, Your Honor. Other questions for counsel? Counsel, you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. I just want to make two points because, Chief Judge Judy, I don't think I finished answering your question in the beginning about the experts. And I know, Judge Maggs, you pointed to appellant releasing one of his experts. So I'd just like to draw this court's attention to April where I don't believe that the second trial motion under the Sixth Amendment is as helpful to the appellant as the asserts here for a couple of reasons. And the first is that no expert at the appellant's trial testified and that the defense even agreed to a 12-day continuance to even litigate the experts. So it indicates that the defense was engaged in these ongoing negotiations, also hoping to secure a deal. And then within days of finding out that the offer to plead guilty had been disapproved, they dropped the speedy trial motion. And then within days of finding out that they couldn't get an expert, they dropped the speedy trial motion. So it indicates the gamesmanship and the strategy that the appellant employed at trial, which should this so wildly did make demands, it should weigh little in his favor. And then I'll just conclude with pointing to the prejudice prong. First, there's not been any indication to the impact of this trial, but as far as it goes with the, at least at trial, the defense counsel told the judge that she was concerned that she could not appropriately question these victims. And so 
I would just point to the record at 971 that the defense actually blistered this witness on cross-exam. And so um, she got out, she carried out the bias to impeach witness. Uh, she had her experts on board, um, at least some of the experts on board up to this point. And then with the military judges chosen remedial action, there was absolutely no impairment of the defense from looking at um, what actually occurred at trial. Uh, and so with the, uh, with, I understand I have more time, but um, pending your questions, this case um, is not the outlier that warrants the interposition of Article 10. Um, and the, the, this court could affirm the judgment of the Army Court. Thank you, counsel. Do any, any judges have other questions? If not, thank you, counsel. And the uh, appellant is recognized for rebuttal. No questions, Your Honor. Good. Yeah. Uh, does the appellant waive rebuttal? Counsel, do you have any further arguments that you would like to make to the court? Or do you rest on your brief and, and what you said um, in your initial argument? Or can you not hear us?